Welcome to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb, helping you find purpose and joy in your life and relationships. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. Turn to Galatians, if you will. Galatians chapter 6, we're going to read just two verses. Your bulletin says one, we'll read two. Galatians chapter 6, we'll read verses 14 and 15. Galatians chapter 6. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. Let's read verse 14 again. But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Yesterday we had a mini-conference. The theme of the conference was getting to know the God who was there. You know what frankly puzzles me sometimes? The better I get to know God, the more puzzled I sometimes become. Here you get a hold of God who's a God of omnipotence. There's nothing too big for him. There's nothing that God can't do. That's a titanic truth. Here you get a hold of the fact that God is love, that his love is unquenchable for me, that his love is motivated not by my lovability, but rather by his character. You get a hold of the fact that God is omniscient, he knows everything, God is sovereign, he's planned everything from a long time ago, and all things are working according to his plan. When you start getting hold of these tremendous truths, I get puzzled. Why is my life sometimes so dull? Why am I sometimes worried about things? Why do I sometimes get frustrated? Why am I anxious? Why is life sometimes just, all right, you know, as opposed to exciting, as opposed to thrilling, if there really is a God? Why is that? It doesn't seem to go together. If there's a God like the God we studied yesterday, if all these things are true, wouldn't it naturally follow that my life would be an exciting, thrilling experience? It would seem to, so what's the problem? Some of you know about Jim Elliott, a missionary who a number of years ago was martyred in Ecuador by the Indians that he went to witness to. When he was in college, he would keep a diary. I might have mentioned the story before to some of you. When he was in college, he kept a diary. One particular entry that he placed in one particular day during his college career, at the end of the day, he scribbled three words. Just messed around. That's what happened to him that day. He just messed around. You sometimes feel like you're just messing around today, tomorrow, weeks to come, months to come. Are we just messing around? That doesn't seem to make sense if these things about God are true. What's the problem? Why is it that our lives are roller coaster type? Why are we up one day praising the Lord, rejoicing in Him, the next day we're down at the bottom and singing the blues? Now why is it, if there really is a God like this, how come there are so few Christians today who really are caught up with the reality of God? What's the problem? What I want to do today is discuss two things. If your life is like that in any way, the first thing you need to know about the problem is where is the problem? Where do you look for the problem? It's location. If there is a God, if you're committed to the fact that the God of the Bible is real, that God is sovereign, omnipotent, holy, just, righteous, loving, omniscient, omnipresent, good, true, eternal, if you're committed to all those things about God, and if your life really isn't reflecting the excitement 
of living in the conscious reality of a God like that, then where's the problem? That's the first thing we need to know. What's the location of the problem? Where do we look to try to find out what's wrong? And secondly, what's the content of the problem? First, the location, and secondly, the content. First, the location. Where is the problem? You know, we've been sold a false bill of goods. We have been saturated with terms like emotional illness. And every time that we have a problem, we look to our emotions for the difficulty. We feel that there's something wrong with our feeling life. Well, we feel this, we feel that, and we figure that's the location of the problem. That's the first place a lot of us turn when we're not really living the kind of life we want to. We turn to the sphere of our emotions. A few years ago, a woman came to see me. She had a problem, a rather difficult one for her to bear. And she had been to see a therapist for close to two years, and it had gotten worse. I said, well, what happened? She said, well, every session I'd go in, and he'd ask me, how do you feel? And I'd tell him how I felt. And he'd say, now I know how you feel. And he'd say, she'd say, yeah, and I still feel that way. Where's the solution? When you stay at the level of feelings, there's no solution. Suppose you had your brakes were not working. And you went to a garage mechanic and you said, Sir, my brakes aren't holding. And he said, Boy, I'll bet you feel nervous about driving. You'd say, Yeah. Uh, and I'd, for that reason, I'd really like you to fix them. Gee, it sounds like you really feel eager to have your brakes fixed. And you'd say, I sure do. So why don't you fix them? And he'd say in true counseling style, Now we're getting somewhere. Your hostility's coming out. <laughs> And she'd be saying, wait a minute, it's not my feelings that are the problem. That's not the location of my difficulty. It's the brakes that need fixing, not my feelings. A few years ago, I got a phone call from my parents. I'll tell the story on my parents. They're not here. They're coming in a few weeks. You'll not tell them I told the story. My mother's an occupational therapist. Two years ago, when she was working at a mental hospital as an occupational therapist, they had a... Um, a series of sensitivity groups that all the therapeutic staff were required to attend. So my mother went to the first session of this sensitivity group, and in that particular session, I learned later what happened, was one, one particular fella who was complaining about a problem he had had at a restaurant. He had failed to leave a tip, and on the way out, the waiter had collared him, essentially, and said, you didn't leave me a tip, and you've got to leave me a tip. It's only proper. And the guy was so nonplussed, he didn't know what to do. He pulled out a couple of bucks and gave it to him and walked out saying, boy, I wish I'd had the strength to tell that waiter off. And that was what he brought up in the group. The way the group leader thought was the way to handle it was to get a pillow and start punching it. To get some plates, literally now, to get some plates and start throwing the plates at the wall, picturing that's the waiter. What's the thought? He had a feeling problem. The location of his problem was at the feeling area. The cure for the problem was the expression of these feelings. Get the poison out. Get it out. Well, my parents called me and Dad said, we'd like your professional opinion, son. You think this is good for your mother? And I said, no. And he said, that's what I said, Isabel. It's not good for you. The theory of that group was what? You have a problem... You look to your feelings, and you stay at the level of feelings to solve it. That's a prominent notion among people today. One psychiatrist I talked to several years back in Illinois told me the times he worked in a mental hospital, where what they had was a, 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 a mud room, 
they called it, in the hospital. And those patients who were particularly aggressive and particularly hostile, they'd be put in the mud room and they'd just start slinging mud for a couple hours. Get it out. Get the feelings out. Express it. The problems at the level of the feelings, the cure is to get it out. That's what a lot of us tend to believe. Now, that's just not true. That's just not biblical. If you look at Romans 6, 7, and 8, the passages that Rev has been going over, or will be going over, six he's already covered in some detail, but if you look at those passages to find out the key to spiritual victory, the key to living in the reality of the God who was there, do you ever find Paul talking about your feelings? Or is he talking about facts? Is he saying there are certain facts? I want you to lay hold of these facts with your mind, and I want you to start living on the basis of these facts. The feelings will come along. The feelings will come. The location of the problem says Paul, has nothing to do with your feelings. Now, it's feelings that are painful. Don't get me wrong. A sensitive person is going to respond to a person who's feeling badly with sympathy. It's difficult to have painful feelings. But if you want to get over the painful feelings, if you want to start living in the conscious reality of the wonderful God who really is there, if that's what you want to do, then you've got to get off of the level of feelings. That's not where the problem is. That's not the location of your problem. That's not the location of why... You, perhaps, this morning are living a life that's just kind of messing around. That really isn't getting with it as far as the God who really is there is concerned. If you stay at the level of feelings, you're going to get awfully frustrated. You're going to get tremendously frustrated. Well, I feel angry towards my wife. So I'll stay right at that level. And uh, I've learned that I'm not supposed to just express all the anger. That doesn't seem to work. That just makes it worse. So rather than that, I'll try to bite my tongue and I'll try to speak nice things to her. I'll just try to feel warm towards her. Did you ever try to get up in the morning and determine, today I'm going to love? You ever done that? Today I'm really going to feel warm towards that nagging woman that's always on my back. But I'm going to feel that way. First thing you know, you say, honey, what's for breakfast? Get it yourself. And the whole resolution is out the window. You see? There's no solution at the level of feelings. That's not the location of your problem. That's not the location of my problem. The second place that we sometimes tend to turn... If we're having a life that really isn't the life we want to have, the second place we tend to turn is the level of circumstances. And we start saying, well, you know, if things were different, if I had more money, a different wife, one less child, whatever, then life would be good. If my circumstances, if the things surrounding me if my home were different, if my family were different, if the circumstances around me were different, then I'd be all right. Now, I was trained when I was in graduate school in a technique of therapy called behavior modification. Those of you who know something about psychology have heard of B.F. Skinner, who's the founder of that particular movement of behavior modification. And according to that particular theory, behavior modification, it says that if you want to change somebody, you change their circumstance. You can modify how a person feels, you can modify how a person thinks, you can modify how a person behaves by going to the environment. People are puppets, says Skinner. People amount to nothing. They're total robots, completely, totally controlled by the circumstance. So if you want to improve somebody, you change the circumstance. You take a bickering, poor family, give them a million bucks and put them in a mansion, now you have a rich, bickering family. There's no change at the level of circumstance. God says that there's a problem that is not going to be solved by changing the circumstances. Turn to Matthew uh, 15 for a minute and see what Christ has to say about this. So many of us feel that the circumstances are what needs to be different. Now, some of you are saying, well, that's not me. I don't really think that way. I understand that the change has to be internal. But you know, 
It's been a real burden to me to see marriages that are not happy. It's a real concern of mine. Because it seems to me that the family is perhaps the last Christian bulwark that we have in America. And that's where Satan seems to be directing his attacks. And it's a burden to me that the family is breaking down in so many quarters. And what happens when a husband is asked, well, what's going on? Well, I'm mad. Well, why are you mad? Because my wife does such and such. Now, what's his problem? He says, my problem is my circumstance. If I buy that, I respond by saying, there's nothing that I can do by just talking to you. You might as well go home and send your wife in because she's the problem, so say you. And then she comes in. What's your problem? I'm mad. Why are you mad? Him. Well, no point in talking to you because he's your problem. So you go home and send him in. What do you get? The Lord answers that in Matthew 15 by saying that their circumstances are not the problem. Listen to it in verse 17 of Matthew 15. Don't you yet understand, Jesus is saying, that whatsoever entereth in from the outside, that coming in from the outside, entereth in at the mouth, goeth into the belly, and is cast out into the draught. But those things which proceed out of the mouth, your anger towards your wife, because of her? Is that the source of your problem? Is that why you can't get with it as far as Christianity is concerned? Is that why you don't have that love in your life because your wife is such a nag? God says, those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from your circumstances. No. Come forth from the heart. And they defile the man. They separate me from the conscious reality of the God who is there. For out of the, out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemy. These are the things not the circumstances which defile a man. So, you know two things so far. We know that if our lives are not what they should be, that the location of the problem is not in our feelings, and the location of the problem is not in our circumstances. So where is the location of the problem? Turn to Romans 12, too. Romans chapter 12. My Sunday school class went over some of this this morning. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. Paul is here saying, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. What's he saying there? Be transformed. Be transformed from the kind of lives that so many of us are leading, lives that don't really count, lives that are not full of excitement, lives that are not alive to the reality of God. Be transformed from that by how? By the renewing of your feelings. No. And that's why a biblical counselor will not spend a lot of time asking you how you feel. Be transformed by the renewing of your circumstances. No, that's not what it says. And that's why a biblical counselor is not going to spend a great deal of time in talking with you about your circumstances. Because that's not where the problem is. Paul says, the Holy Spirit talking through Paul, God telling us through Paul, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Look at Romans 1. Look back at Romans chapter 1. God says transformation is going to come by the renewing of our minds. Now, in verse 29 of Romans chapter 1, Paul, Paul tells us about the condition of certain people. He says these people, in verse 29, were filled with all unrighteousness. They weren't doing good things. Fornication, there was immorality. Wickedness, covetousness, they were jealous of other people, jealous of what they had. They were rebelling against their circumstances. Maliciousness, they were nasty. They were full of envy and murder and debate and deceit and malignancy, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. That's thrown in there and the same list of other things. Without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. Now, that's quite a list. How did it get started? How did all this come about? Do some of those things characterize your lives? What's the problem? Look at verse 28. 
even as they did not like to retain God. Where? In their knowledge. Where do you hold knowledge? In your emotions? You hold knowledge in your mind. Even as they did not like to retain God, to think about God, to bring God into the picture, to fill their minds with God, as a result of not doing that, look what happened. Their judgment was clouded. God gave them over to a mind that he could not approve of, a mind that exercised bad judgment to do those things which didn't work. Now, does anybody sit out? Does anybody sit down and say, today I'm going to try to ruin my family? How many do that? Well, I suppose none of us. Today I'm going to try to ruin my kids. I'm going to try to drive a wedge between my kid and me. How many of us do that? Very few. But that's what we end up doing, isn't it? Now, why? Is our judgment faulty? Why is it sometimes we have a knack for always doing just exactly the wrong thing? We're exercising the best judgment we have, but so often it's faulty. Why? Paul is saying that when you leave God out of your knowledge, when you don't bring God into your mind, when your mind is not renewed by a knowledge of him, then your judgment begins to fail. Your understanding is darkened, he says in Ephesians 4. You're alienated from the life of God. You're separated from the God who really is there, the God who wants to provide you with wisdom. Why? Because you're not retaining God in your knowledge. Where's the problem? In your mind. What's on your mind? That's the question that has to be asked, because that's where we're going to find the solution the cause of your problems, and secondly, the solution of your problems. When you answer the question, what's on your mind? There are four things that might be on your mind this morning. Four things. The Apostle Paul said that there were four things that he could have gloried in. There were four things that he could have filled his mind with. Now, the first three things, if he filled his mind with any one of those first three things, he'd have been in trouble. The fourth thing, filling his mind with that, led to the spiritual giant that Paul was. What I'd like you to do for the next few minutes is as I discuss these four things very, very briefly, just mention them really, what I'd like you to do is to imagine that for the past seven days, 24 hours a day, your mind was being tape recorded. Were that possible? You're all sitting there saying, oh, oh, don't, don't tell anybody. Don't play it out loud. But let's just suppose that for the minute, that your mind was being tape recorded for the past seven days. And now you're sitting down listening to that tape recorder, and you have four categories in front of you. And every time the tape recorder plays a thought, something that your mind was filled with, you put a mark in one of the categories that best describes that thought. And at the end of that week, at the end of listening to what you've said, you see what category has most of the marks in it. And you'll know what your problem is. And you'll have some at least beginning understanding of why it is your life is not all that you want it to be. What are the four categories? The Apostle Paul says there were four things that he could have gloried in, that he could have thought about. Whatever we fill our minds with is what we think is important. Well, fill our minds with what we think is important. Look at Philippians chapter 3 for the first thing, the first category of thoughts. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 4. And as you're turning, I'll read it to you. Philippians 3, verse 4 through 7. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, Paul is saying, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, well, I have more reason for thinking that. I circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which in the law blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. What's Paul saying? He was born on the right side of the tracks. 
Paul was born on the right side of the tracks, educated at the best universities. He had everything going for him. He had lots in the way of this first category is human ability and achievements. Is your mind on that? Paul could have been glorying in that, and he could have been filling his own mind with human ability and achievement. What he has accomplished, his financial gain, he's climbed to the top of the ladder, he's done this, he's done that, I have this ability, I have that ability. His mind could have been filled with that. And he said, as far as I'm concerned, it's all dumb compared to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. My mind is not filled with that. Now, you know, there's, there's another subtle way in which your mind can be filled with that. If you don't have much to glory in by way of human ability and achievement, and if your mind is dwelling on the fact that you don't have much, if you're thinking not about the Lord, but rather thinking about the fact that you haven't got much, if you spend the week saying, well, I wish I had that, I don't have this ability, I haven't achieved that, my life has been a waste, I wish I would have achieved that and I didn't, then your mind is on human ability and achievement, in this case, the lack of it. And you're going to be a depressed person. Or if your mind is on human ability and achievement, you're going to be a proud person. Either way, is not going to lead to the joy of the Lord. Paul says, I place no value on human achievements. I place no value on human ability. Compared to the glory of Christ, it's nothing. What's your mind on? How many check marks have to go on that particular category? Well, I did pretty well in school last week. And you dwell on that? Is that what your life is built around, your academic success? The income's doing pretty well, or the income's doing terribly. Either way, is that what your mind is on? What's your mind on? The second category that Paul could have gloried in, could have spent time thinking about, I'm calling suffering and hardship. Let me read to you out of a different translation, out of Philip's translation of the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is saying that he wanted to vindicate his apostleship. The people were saying that, Paul, we think other people have better ideas than you. We're not sure if you're from God. And Paul is saying, now listen to me, once more, let me advise you, in the Philip's translation, 2 Corinthians 11:16, not to look upon me as a fool. Yet if you do, then listen to what this fool has to boast about. If I want to fill my mind with some certain things, I can do it, says Paul. I'm not now speaking as the Lord commands me. He doesn't command me to fill my mind with this. But I'm speaking as a fool who must be in on this business of boasting. Since all the others are so proud of themselves, let me do a little boasting as well. From your heights of superior wisdom, I am sure you can smile tolerantly at a fool. Oh, you're tolerant, all right. You don't mind, do you? If a man takes away your liberty, spends your money, takes advantage of you, puts on airs, or even smacks your face, I'm almost ashamed to say that I never did brave, strong things like that to you. Yet in whatever particular they enjoy such confidence, these false prophets, I, speaking as a fool, remember, have just as much confidence. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's children? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I have more claim to this title than they. This is a silly game, Paul says, but look at this list now. And here's the suffering and hardships. I have worked harder than any of them. I have served more prison sentences. I have been beaten times without number. I have faced death again and again. I have been beaten the regulation 39 stripes by the Jews five times, been beaten with rods three times, been stoned once, been shipwrecked three times, been 24 hours in the open sea in my travels. I've been in constant danger from rivers and floods, from bandits, from my own countrymen, from pagans. I have faced danger in city streets, danger in the desert, danger in the high seas, danger among false Christians. I have known exhaustion, pain, long vigils, hunger and thirst, doing without meals, cold and lack of clothing. Apart from all external trials, I have the daily burden of responsibility for all the churches. Are you getting depressed? This is Paul talking. 
Do you think anyone is weak without my feeling his weakness? Does anyone have his faith upset without my longing to restore him? If I'm going to boast, let me boast of the things which have shown up my weakness. In Damascus, the town governor, acting by King Aretas' order, had men out to arrest me. I escaped by climbing through a window and being let down a wall in a basket. That's the sort of dignified exit I can boast about. What's Paul saying? You think you had a tough? Listen to this. Is my mind on my hardships? Is Paul glorying in the things that are going wrong in his life? Things are going wrong in your life. They go wrong in mine, they go wrong in yours. Sometimes it seems like nothing goes right in your life. Sometimes circumstances get downright tough. Paul says, you fill your mind with your circumstances. You fill your mind with your hardships. You fill your mind on all the suffering you're going through, on all the problems in your family, on all the financial problems you have, on the fact that people don't say hello to you, on the fact that you are not really taken care of by other people as you should, you fill your mind with all that sort of thing, you're going to end up resentful, depressed, angry, feeling sorry for yourself, and you're going to wonder, where did God get to? And God says, what's your mind on? Paul says, I'm not going to glory in any of that. I am not going to spend time thinking about my hardships. The third thing that Paul could have spent time thinking about had he wanted to Recognizing again the location of the problem is not our feelings, not our circumstances, but our mind. What's your mind filled with? Your tape recorder's out, you're listening to it, you put some check marks in category one, abilities and achievements, or lack of them. Secondly, you put your check mark in hardships and sufferings. How much do you dwell on the things that are wrong? I'm not saying things aren't wrong, but how much do you dwell on them? My husband doesn't treat me right, and that makes me mad, and I think about it 24 hours a day. Now, what are you? You're a resentful person. What's your mind on? The third thing, spiritual success. In 2 Corinthians 12, the portion that follows what I've just read, Paul goes on to describe a situation about a man that most feel was Paul, that Paul was transported by God up to the third heaven, to God's dwelling place itself, right to the very presence of God, and Paul saw heaven. Paul saw the glory of God. What a spiritual triumph. What a tremendous thing. And Paul came back to earth, a completely changed man. Can you imagine that? To see the glory of God right firsthand, then to come back, how important would that boat be to you? How important would the new sofa that you just wish you had be to you? How important would the car that really is not the one you want and you wish you had that one? After you've seen the glory of God, can you imagine the changed perspective? And can you imagine the danger that Paul was in? The Lord knew about his danger. He might start filling his mind with his spiritual success. And so God gave him a thorn in the flesh so he he would not become absurdly conceited. There's a pattern that I've seen in my own life and in others. People that are longing to get with it for God. Then they do. They really learn how to yield themselves to the Lord and give themselves totally to him. Then they start experiencing they're on top of things. And things seem so good, nothing gets to them. They have the joy of the Lord. And it lasts for a couple of weeks. Maybe a month. Maybe longer. Maybe a couple of years. And there's a crash. Some of you know some dramatic instances of that. Men of God. Men who have served the Lord faithfully. Who had the real thing. There's just no way it can be doubted. It seems so evident from our perspective that there's a man who really has it. And then we learn that he's committed immorality. Why? Many reasons, I'm sure. 
but one that I think can happen very easily as a person begins to enjoy spiritual success by, de- by dependence on the Lord, he loses sight of the Lord and begins focusing on the success. That can happen. That happens regularly. A couple of years ago, I preached a two series uh, sermons, two sermons in a row at another church. And uh, the first Sunday, I was really before the Lord in prayer. Lord, it's a difficult subject. I want to get it across. I really want to have your power. I can't do anything in myself. Will you fill me and use me today? And the Lord blessed. And as I preached that day, I recall feeling the power of God flowing, flowing through me to the blessing of those who were listening. It was an exciting day, and the glory went to God, because God was with me. There was spiritual success. And that week, I became occupied with the spiritual success. Now, I'm not speaking just so much about pride, that certainly was involved, but more the idea of saying, wasn't it wonderful how the Lord blessed? We had a wonderful day here yesterday. There was some real spiritual victory. God poured out his blessing on those who were here yesterday. That's wonderful. Rather than thinking about the blessing, nothing's wrong with rejoicing in all that God has done. Everything's right with that. But let's never forget the source of the blessing. During that week, between the first sermon and the next, I really forgot or didn't think much about the source of the blessing. If I had been keeping that list with my tape recorder, most of the thoughts would have been in what a good Sunday it was the last week. That's what the thoughts would have been. And next Sunday, I got up there anticipating another joyous spiritual success, and I bombed. Totally bombed. Preached the worst sermon ever preached in my life. Why? What was my mind? What was my mind on? God? The source of the blessing the previous week? Or was my mind on spiritual success? Boy, that happens. That's a pattern. Some of you are sitting there saying, that's me. Some of you are recognizing that's just what I go through. I get on top of things. I'm up. And I really am. It's real. And then I'm down. Let me start saying, was it real? Is life just an up and down thing? And once in a while I can kid myself to think there really is a God and I can psychologically manipulate my mind and get up in a false kind of a way? Or is it something else? What it might be, check it out, when you're up, what's your mind on? On spiritual success or on the source of spiritual success? Interesting to notice that um, King Asa, back in Second Chronicles 15, after he had just won a tremendous spiritual victory, God had given him the victory over a large army, an army he could not have beaten in his own strength. God came in and gave him the victory. The next thing that happened, God sent his prophet and said, Asa, watch out, you're in danger. In danger of what? Just had a wonderful spiritual victory. That's why you're in danger. You're in danger of filling your mind with that spiritual victory and forgetting who it was that provided the victory. What's your mind on? Human abilities and achievements? Your hardships? Your difficult circumstances? Your realistically difficult circumstances? Your spiritual success? What does Paul say in our key verse? The text verse for today. I'm going to glory in nothing. I regard nothing important compared to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. My mind is going to be continually occupied with the cross. When something goes wrong in my life, maybe a real little small thing. When something goes wrong in my life, maybe a big thing. When there's a problem that comes up, when there's a success that arises, where's my mind? On the success, on the problem, on my achievement, on my lack of it? Or is my mind going to be fixed at every moment on the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ? Why is Paul doing that? What does Paul see when he looks at the cross? Let me just suggest a few things. There's so much to see when you look at the cross. What did Paul see? Why does it work? Why will your mind be renewed? How will you be transformed by the renewing of your mind by keeping your mind fixed on the cross of Christ? You see a couple of things when you look at the cross. First, you see yourself. 
You see yourself. You see yourself as a sinner who deserves to be there. Jesus did not deserve to be there. He never sinned. He was God himself. When I look at the cross, I see my sin. I see that it was my sin that put Jesus Christ there. And then I see myself as helpless, as hopeless, as deserving of nothing, of having no rights, of having no chance of life with God, apart from its being a gift, because I can never earn it. I get a proper estimation of myself as a sinner when I look at the cross. If you don't start with that, if you don't start with that, you'll go nowhere in your Christian life. Every heresy someone has said, I've mentioned it before, every heresy has its inception in a weak or feeble conception of sin. You look at the cross and you'll not have a weak conception of sin. You'll see sin in all of its horror as Jesus paid for my sin. He became sin and look what happened to the Son of God. That gives me a proper estimate of me. I'm helpless. There's nothing I can do to have life with God. There's no way that I can cash in on all the resources of heaven in my own strength. I have nothing. And I see that when I look at the cross. The second thing I see when I look at the cross, the end of our verse there says, the world is crucified to me and I to the world. When I see what Jesus Christ has done for me on the cross, when I see the riches he's brought me into, he's taken my sins and he's forgiven me by paying for them himself, and now he wants to shower me with all spiritual blessings, and God says that if I won't spare the best of heaven, if I won't spare my son, am I going to hold back anything else? Am I going to hold back all the joy and the blessing and the wonder and the excitement of an abundant life? Am I going to hold it back? Well, of course not. I've already given you the best. Won't I give you the rest along with it? When I look at the cross, what do I do? As I see the riches of Christ, the world fades in comparison. The attraction of the world becomes nothing. As I fix my mind on Christ and on his cross. Now, that isn't true in my experience. Sometimes the world seems awfully attractive and I want what the world has to offer. When I'm wanting that, what am I looking at? The world. Looking at the cross, the world fades. It's nothing compared to the riches that are available in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Most of us really don't. Why? What's your mind on? That's why. Your mind isn't on the cross. Mine isn't on the cross as often as it should be. I see a third thing when I look at the cross. Paul must have seen this. I'm sure he did so clearly. He saw the sufficiency of God. Here I am. I'm hopeless. I'm undone. I've seen myself. The world has nothing to offer me. But God, you're sufficient. When Jesus Christ said, it is finished, what he was saying is, man, there's no more that you can do to add what I've already done to give you life with God. I've done it all. Don't you try to help out in your own salvation. Don't try to live a good life in order to get saved. Live a good life because you've been saved. Because God said on the cross, it is finished. The sufficiency of God to take care of my justification. I've been called of him, I've been justified, and God is sufficient to take this justified saint and to glorify me someday. Now that's available to me. That's what I have. And when I look at the cross, I see the sufficiency. What, what else do I need? See, I don't need you anymore. You don't need me. We don't need money. We don't need food. We don't need a family. We don't need any of this. God is sufficient. If he wants us to have those things, if he wants us to stay alive, sure, we need food. Well, he'll give it to us. If it's in his purpose to give us a happy family, a family where there's real joy and health, he'll give it to us. God is sufficient. And as I look at him, I end up trusting him for everything because I see his sufficiency on the cross. He said it's finished. You can't add a thing. I've done it all. The fourth thing I see, and this ties in most directly with our conference yesterday, and this is last. When I look at the cross, 
of Jesus Christ, I see God. Notice there the way that Paul brings words together, the cross, symbol of humiliation, shame, weakness. The cross of who? The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, his majestic title. He pairs them together. When I look at the cross, I see God. I see God and his sovereignty, an attribute that means so much to get a hold of. I see his sovereign plan being worked out. I see God and his omnipotence. I see a God who is conquering sin and death, conquering Satan. I see God in his holiness. He hates sin. I see God in his justice. He must punish sin. I see God in his, in his love. He takes my punishment for me. I see God in his immutability. He set his face as a flint to go to Jerusalem, and even that experience in the garden did not deter him from getting there. My Jesus is the same. When he planned to come to the cross, when he was in the garden, when he was hanging on the cross, the same today. He doesn't change in his purposes. He's an immutable God, and I see that in the cross. He's an eternal God. Death couldn't hold, my Lord. That's the God I have. He's eternal life, and I see his attributes. And as I think about the cross, and as I fill my mind with the cross, taking every little circumstance that comes into my life, and as I see this happens and that happens, right away, Lord, what does this have to do with you? I look at the cross, I see I'm helpless. I look at the world, I see there's nothing there. I look at your sufficiency, I look at you, you're omnipotent, you're sovereign, you're powerful, you're love, you're all these things. And this circumstance in my life, I can relax. You're in charge, and you love me. And as my mind is on the cross of Jesus Christ, there's going to be reality. What's your mind on? Where have your check marks fallen? As I've talked about these four things. Human ability or God's ability? Your suffering or his suffering? Your spiritual victory or God's victory at the cross? Is your mind on the cross of Jesus Christ? If it is, and if you continue to refresh your mind with thoughts about the cross of Jesus Christ, fixing your mind on that, you know what's going to happen to your life? You're going to be transformed. You're going to be transformed. You're going to become like the Lord. You're going to become more and more like him because you have the strength for it. No, because you're drawing the strength from thinking about the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul said, I'm going to think about nothing. I'm going to glory in nothing. I'm going to be proud of nothing. I'm going to place value on nothing except one thing, and that's the cross. What's your mind on? And as you answer that question, I hope it's helpful in pinpointing where the problem is in your mind and pinpointing what the problem is. Maybe your mind's on the wrong thing. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.